Welcome to the Doctors Hospital podcast. I am your host, Alexis Burrows, brand manager at Doctors Hospital. Today we are going to talk about lupus. That is our focus point. Uh, May is uh, Lupus Awareness Month here in the Bahamas, um, and I think around the world as well. So today we have um, board-certified rheumatologist and board-certified internal medicine specialist, Dr. Anishka Roll, um, who is here to talk everything lupus um, with us. So I'll just invite you to, to say hello, um, and if you need any further introduction, please feel free to add to, to that. Hello, Alexis, and thank you for the opportunity to be here to speak on lupus, which is a very important topic. Um, I also want to um, give reference to the Lupus 2 Part 2 Foundation. Um, these are warriors of women that are and men uh, that serve uh, to promote awareness of lupus in the Bahamas, and they've been doing an excellent job. And so I just want to give credit to those persons. Great. Thank you, and we are we're happy to have you. Um, I know lupus is a from I guess from my experience. You know, I'm somebody who grew up watching um, House, and every time somebody came in with something that people weren't sure of, lupus was always one of the things that they mentioned. Um, so it's something that I think is kind of you know maybe out there in the public consciousness, but maybe not as much as it should be. Um, so we have you, a, a real physician, on um, to talk about lupus today with us. So just in a nutshell, what, what is lupus? Um, lupus is a systemic autoimmune disease which the body, in which the body produces antibodies that attack uh, healthy tissue. And this leads to inflammation and end organ damage. Uh, like you mentioned, uh, lupus is a pretty, most people are familiar with lupus, so it's fairly common in terms of what people uh, describe in the vernacular of a connective tissue disease. However, most people don't realize how extensive it is in the population and um, also, um, you know, the, the type of uh, effects that it, ca it causes. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the types of lupus, it is a very varied disease. And so lupus can be systemic, which means it can affect multiple organ systems and from head to toe. It can also be cutaneous. That's lupus that is confined to the skin. And that too comes in multiple forms. It can also be drug induced. And um, many of the commonly used drugs, for example, antibiotics or tetracyclines, Bactrim, um, and some of the cardiac medications. And there's also neonatal lupus, which is lupus that can be passed down from a mother with lupus that has certain antibodies, particularly the anti-row antibodies, can be passed on from mother to child with the baby being born with neonatal lupus. Hmm. So what, what can cause lupus? Well, the causes of lupus 
um, are multifactorial. Uh, there are genetic causes that put people at increased risk. However, lupus is not passed down, for example, from mother to child. Um, the links in terms of genetic links, when they have studied, for example, identical twins show that uh, there is some genetic linkage. However, this confers only a 30% increased risk of, say, one uh, twin having lupus over the other. So there's no specific gene identified at this point. There are other causes that are include environmental causes as well as um, infectious causes and uh, which are triggers, particularly Epstein-Barr virus that can cause um, lupus. Going back to the environmental causes, uh, exposure to UVA, UVB light, and even fluorescent light have been associated with a significant as well increased uh, risk of lupus. Mm -hmm. So there are many, many causes, but uh, the specific trigger in each individual person is not known. Understood. Um, well, given, I guess, the the complexity of it, um, is there a way to determine who is at risk for lupus? That's a very good question. Um, lupus definitely uh, is a disease that affects primarily women of childbearing age. And by that, I mean women between the ages of 15 and 15 to 44 in particular. There's an incidence of a nine to one being that female to male ratio in terms of um, how lupus is penetrated. Uh, however, I just mentioned the, the genetics of it. Persons with a family history are at higher risk, not, in, not particularly just lupus alone, but any persons in the family that have a connective tissue disease makes other family members more susceptible to lupus and other connective or inflammatory diseases. Um, so the the main point is is that it's definitely because of the linkage with estrogen uh, it is a disease that is definitely more prominent in the female population of childbearing age mm -hmm. okay um so how how is lupus diagnosed like what are some of the and i guess what are some of the difficulties in diagnosing the disease thank you for mentioning the difficulties it is very challenging and demanding um, because of its multi complex, multi-system nature of lupus, um, it has significant variability between patients and even within the same patient over time. So definitely diagnosis is difficult. Um, in terms of uh, what we do to diagnose patients, uh, we use a clinical approach along with, of course, labs and serologic workup which means looking at the antibody panel to determine if a patient is at high risk or has lupus. Uh, this includes, uh, like I mentioned, is a systemic approach. So, for example, the more common features that we see with lupus patients include an arthritis, um, where, and that is an inflammatory arthritis. Mm -hmm. For most patients, it's not deforming, as in rheumatoid arthritis. So it's usually reducible in terms of particularly the small joints of the hands, but it is inflammatory. Skin features and mucocutaneous features we look at include 
rashes, particularly those which are photosensitive. Most patients or people are aware of the malar rash, which is how lupus got its name, which is a hyperthemic rash that spans the nasal bridge onto the cheeks. Mm -hmm. And um, that rash mimicked the bite of a wolf. And that is how the name of lupus actually came into um, being. But that is one of the pathognomonic features of lupus. But there are many other types of rashes. Um, also, in, uh, there's significant hair loss, hair thinning, or alopecia. For mucocutaneous involvement, that involves oral ulcers, uh, in particular, nasopharyngeal ulcers as well. Uh, looking at the cardiac uh, system, there's increased risk of cardiovascular disease. But more commonly, we see also fluid collections around the heart. Um, we call that a pericardial effusion. And inflammatory infiltration in the heart, we call that pericarditis. Uh, there's also in lung involvement, interstitial lung disease, and a, a higher incidence of pulmonary hypertension. Uh, in terms of pain related to lung involvement, there's pleurisy, which is inflammation of the lining of the lung and the rib cage. And um, there's also pleural effusions, fluid inside the lung. Um, so there, is, there are many, many manifestations, and I'm only naming some of them. And I should mention some of the other, um, which is very important, uh, manifestations include stroke syndromes, increased risk of clotting uh, because of lupus association with uh, antibodies that increase the risk of clotting, like lupus anticoagulants, anticardiolipin, and we call these conditions anti phospholipid syndrome. And so lupus patients are also at risk for those things, like I mentioned, uh, clots in the lungs, clots in the legs, as well as stroke syndromes. Okay. Um, so um, I understand that there's... I should mention, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. oh. Go ahead. I should mention, I'm sorry, that that was part of the clinical manifestation. I didn't get to the laboratory evaluation. Mm -hmm. um, because lupus can affect the bone marrow... Uh, we looked for cytopenias, and that simply means uh, changes in your blood numbers. For example, anemia, low white blood cell count, low platelet counts, um, uh, which increase your, uh, your risk of infection and of bleeding. Um, we also see serologically in terms of looking for specific antibodies. Uh, we look at the anti-nuclear antibody testing, and we look at titers. But beyond that, we look at something called extra nuclear antigens. And this gives us a profile of what the patient might be at risk for. And we can determine or at least help to map out the prognosis of the patient based on those antibodies and also determine if the patient is at risk for other secondary connective tissue diseases. Understood. Now, I... Um, I understand that the you mentioned, a, I guess, a list of, of um, clinical presentations. Is it still such that there needs to be a certain number of those presentations um, in play in order for someone to be diagnosed with lupus? We, that's a good question. We do 
um, use a criteria for diagnosis apart from just the general clinical criteria. As a rheumatologist, we use something, there are many different um, monitoring and um, diagnostic criteria that we can use um, that have been um, produced by the American College of Rheumatology and EULA, which is the European League. Um, we, we use those um, clinically in-house and definitely um, investigationally to help direct and, uh, the type of lupus patients that you have and make sure that you have a definitive diagnosis. However, in the real world, because many patients, like I was mentioned, the presentation is very varied and not all patients will present the same. Everyone has their specific signature uh, depending on the organ involvement. And that too varies within the same person over time. We don't use just one specific criteria, but I should mention those ones that we do use as a rheumatologist include SLADI, which is uh, the simplest one. All of them are extremely complicated otherwise. And those include the SLIC criteria, the SLAM, and BILAG. I know these are <laughs> lots of different words I'm just calling out, but we typically would not use that in the general population. Mm -hmm. um, but to get to you, answer your question, um, no, you do not have to have all of these features at one time. Um, there are many, like I said, varied presentations of lupus, but what we have to do is tease out um, the, the, the signs and the symptoms that you come to us with to determine exactly if these things are in fact related to lupus activity. And we do that with a combination of the labs, whatever the clinical features that you present with, whether it's the history and exam, and then we create a picture. It's like a detective work and come up with um, the definitive diagnosis of lupus or not. Now, I must mention that there are patients um, that can present with, for example, isolated eye disease and many years down the road then develop arthritis and the rash that we see typical for lupus. Mm -hmm. And this is why at the time of diagnosis, whether they get a definitive diagnosis or not, we try to monitor these patients over the years. Mm -hmm. And this is why it's very, very, very important to seek um, early on uh, specialty care um, to be referred early on to specialists like myself um, so that you can have adequate monitoring mm -hmm. and so that we can make sure that there's no end organ damage because that is what the goal that ultimately we're trying. We're not, we're trying to treat all the, um, definitely, but we're also trying to mitigate any progression of the disease mm -hmm. and to avoid end organ damage and also obviously reduce um, uh, morbidity right. and so, mortality. Right. So one of the things you mentioned just now um, is this, uh, this idea of monitoring over time. So that leads to, I guess, my next question, which is what is the role of the general practitioner, um, internist, or other healthcare providers who suspect they have a patient with a connective tissue disease like lupus? Right. Thank you for that question. Um, the role of your general practitioner or your primary care provider is extremely important. The reason why I say that is because they are the ones that are on the first line of seeing patients, um, you know, when they come in with the initial symptoms. And so we want them to have the awareness 
um, of the many manifestations of lupus and to be able to, because like I said, it takes a, uh, some detective work to be able to, de- to decide um, whether what test to order, that's number one, mm-hmm. and to decide when it's time to refer. It's all, what I find is, is that many doctors might feel that the disease has not progressed enough to warrant referral to a specialist, but actually it's reverse. What we want is we want early referral just um, in the case of many of the other diseases I treat, for example, inflammatory arthritis like rheumatoid arthritis. Um, studies have shown that early referral within three weeks, three months, sorry, of um, initial um evaluation of a patient mm-hmm. uh, can significantly reduce morbidity and deformity by greater than 50 to 70 percent. So if I extrapolate this to our lupus patients, the same thing um, is why I'm suggesting that the role of the general practitioner, the primary care provider, the internist is very important because we need to see these patients when we can institute uh, therapy, mm-hmm. start monitoring to prevent end-stage renal disease, to prevent heart failure, to prevent uh, severe lung disease that requires lung transplantation, to prevent people from losing their vision, um, to prevent severe deforming joint arthritis, and also um, um, you know, to prevent any secula that's going to lead to long-term impaired function of that patient Mm -hmm. understood now you mentioned obviously just now this um the idea of treatment and therapy as a way to slow down the progression of of the disease so what are some of the treatment options or or how is lupus typically treated um good question lupus treatment again is patient specific Mm -hmm. But the bread and butter of lupus is systemic steroids, and that includes any form of steroid, particularly uh, medrol or methylprednisolone, prednisone. Uh, We use this because it can acutely control inflammation and ultimately control the disease. However, the problems with using this drug and that I've seen, particularly amongst the general population and with... um, um, providers that don't accelerate the patient's care is that they leave patients on prednisone long-term. And unfortunately, long-term use of high-dose steroids can have significant adverse effects. Mm-hmm. Um, many patients can be diagnosed with lupus, and I see it particularly in this population at a, signi- uh, at a, very, at a very young age. Um, I see patients um, with lupus that are as l- young as eight, um, being diagnosed, and so their exposure to these medications um, span, uh, if you think of a lifetime, over 50 years plus. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be very careful with how the medications are, one, prescribed, how long they're prescribed in term, and, and of co- the duration of therapy, sorry, and the dosage of therapy that we um, subject these patients to. So getting back to your question, uh, answering your question, um, systemic steroids, like I mentioned, is the first line for con- acute control of the disease. But ultimately, we put these patients on what we would call steroid-sparing medications, and that includes hydroxychloroquine. This, too, is a bread and butter of um, uh, lupus 
disease control or management. Hydroxychloroquine, um, the trade name is uh, Plaquenil. I know it's been in the news a lot lately. Mm -hmm. um, but we use this as well because it helps to reduce flares. It helps to control inflammation and um, actually uh, reduces the progression of the disease. Beyond Plaquenil, though, we use a lot of what we call disease-modifying medications. All of these medications are immunosuppressive therapies. And by that, I mean because lupus patients have immune dysfunction or dysregulation, what we're trying to do is get the immune system to be suppressed so that we can reduce antibodies that are causing damage to specific organs. And so we use these in combination typically, um, and it depends on what the patient presents with. Some of them include methotrexate, um, cell sap, um, or mycophenolate mofetil is what is commonly referred to. That's the generic name. Um, we also use, sorry, um, Prograf. We also use cyclosporin, um, particularly for those patients with renal involvement. And then we have our, our medications that are more uh, that are chemotherapy, like cytotoxin, that we use for patients with severe renal disease, and we're trying to preserve organ function. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, though, we have oh, I should mention we also use Imuran, and um, particularly in our pregnant population of patients, I should mention that um, we try to keep the disease quiet during pregnancy. So we always advise patients we have to do pre-pregnancy counseling so that we can either adjust the medications to medications you can be on so that it would not cause any harm to the baby. Mm -hmm. But uh, we try to maintain disease control during pregnancy with two med medications in particular. That would be the hydroxychloroquine that I mentioned before mm -hmm. and azathioprine or Imuran because those drugs are safe for the baby. Okay. Beyond pregnancy, though, there are many other medications and there are newer drugs in the pipeline. Um, in 2011, uh, there was a significant... Um, introduction of a new drug that has we haven't had a new drug for lupus in 50 years so this was exciting mm -hmm. news this is a monoclonal antibody called belimulab sorry um and um we have been using that and i've used it personally many times it comes as an infusion as a, and an injectable form and it's an antibody that we use uh sorry it's a monoclonal antibody drug that we use again to help limit some of the deleterious effects of um, uh, the antibodies on um, B cells. So we try to shut that down um, by immune modulation therapy. Um, other therapies that are in the pipeline are JAK inhibitors, which are another set of um, immune modulating therapy. Um, uh, the latest one is baricitinib. And then finally, ustekinumab, which is an IL-23, IL-12 inhibitor. And so what we are doing in the medical community is finding um, points in the immune system, in the cytokine cascade, that actually we block those points so that we can limit inflammation and ultimately limit the antibodies that cause damage 
um, to uh, reduce activity of the disease and ultimately reduce the burden of um, organ damage. Mm -hmm. Uh, so what are some of the, the common complications related to lupus? Because it sounds like it's it's a, it's a type of thing that may have um, a lot of different potential complications given the, the, the many different ways it can um, present. So what are some of the, the more common complications? Thank you for that. The, more, the, more, the most common complication I see particularly in this population uh, the most common complications include renal disease, and um, that would be either chronic renal failure or end-stage renal disease. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, for patients in which lupus affects the kidney, we call it lupus nephritis. Um, these patients, if not caught early on, if not treated adequately, progress to end-stage renal disease and either require hemodialysis or renal um uh, renal replacement, mm -hmm. and by that I mean um, organ transplantation. Right. Uh, other common, um, other other common um, uh, complications uh, for these patients, um, uh, in particular, includes uh, infections. And I say that because, like I mentioned, uh, lupus is uh, it causes immune dysfunction, and so uh, that being the case. The, they, uh, the patients are already at a disadvantage because they cannot fight against n natural infections um, uh, like the general population would. But in particular, we also use medications to suppress the immune system. Mm -hmm. And so that, again, confers an increased risk to these patients. And um, so like, unlike the general populations, these patients are at a higher risk for developing complications related to infection. Um, other major complications that we don't highlight enough, I believe, um, is, um, sorry, other, other major, is the risk of cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. Um, because again, lupus is a systemic disease. It can affect any vessel, whether it causes vasculitis, and that means inflammation specifically in the vessel wall. But it also increases the risk of coronary artery disease and atherosclerotic disease. And by that, I mean um, diseases uh, involving the vessels, which lead to occlusion and can lead to end organ damage by causing ischemia. And the ones we're most commonly familiar with are strokes and heart attack or myocardial infarction. Mm -hmm. And so we see patients in this subgroup, the lupus patients, that unfortunately, if they have uncontrolled raging inflammation that's not adequately controlled, we pay, see patients as young as in their 20s, me having the need for um, uh, percutaneous intervention, which by that I mean stenting in the cardiac vessels because of ischemic disease in the heart, um, or they need um, vascular transplant. Um, in these patients, and many can go on to progress to develop a heart failure. So the complications are protein and um, diverse in terms of what these people can experience um, with lupus, particularly patients that have severe disease. Now, I don't want to be the bearer of uh, bad news for everything. Not all lupus patients will experience such severe manifestations. Mm -hmm. There are patients that I um, <laughs> describe as lupus light, 
meaning that they have very mild disease and much of their manifestations will be confined to the skin and to the joints. And for those patients, thankfully, they might never experience um, organ involvement, for example, with the heart or the lungs, the kidney or the brain. And so for those patients, we those patients are much, much easier to manage. And we typically keep them on hydroxychloroquine and if indicated other medications, like I mentioned before, for joint control and pain control. But um, again, those patients, um, uh, again, needs to be monitored on a regular basis so that there would be no progression of their disease. Mm. Okay. Um, I wanted to circle back to something that you, you mentioned, um, I think, one or two questions ago. Um, and that's specifically how lupus relates to um, pregnancy. So I know in the in the early stages, you mentioned that, you know, there's a the presentation of lupus here in our environment is particularly prevalent in the female population. So for your female patients with lupus, how um, how would you advise about um, pregnancy, you know, in terms of is it an option? Is it not an option? And how would you go about going through that process? Sure. Well, I want to dispel the myth that lupus patients cannot get pregnant. Um, This disease does not um, cause or um, limit or inhibit in any way patients from getting pregnant. So that's number one. Um, Number two, um, I always, just like I had mentioned before, we have to be very specific in the the advice and the prognosis, diagnoses, et cetera, that we give to patients um, it has to be based, again, specific to the patient's lupus activity. So the, I always tell patients, um, particularly women that are desirous of pregnancy, one, it should be something that should be planned, meaning that we try to avoid as much as possible um, any unplanned pregnancies because of all the risks that I had already mentioned and because these patients are on medications that are teratogenic, meaning that um, they cause poor outcome in the babies. Patients with lupus are already at higher risk for what we call premature um, tr- premature births, mm-hmm. um, also for intrauterine growth restrictions and um, death, and also a condition called eclampsia, um, in which the mom in particular is at risk for seizures um, during the uh, during the particularly during the the delivery period and after and so we try to um ha- work hand in hand with the obstetrician and i always advise patients they should see um medical care from um a high risk obstetrician meaning that they need to be monitored on a very regular basis mm-hmm. uh, if you do decide or plan to or happen to get pregnant and Apart from seeking out um, care with your obstetrician um, and seeing your rheumatologist on a very regular basis during the pregnancy and before the pregnancy, actually, um, we also um, talk about, like I said, changing up that medication. For those persons who are at lower risk and are only on Plaquenil and a low dose of steroid, then we ask, we um, advise patients to remain on the cost. 
to stay on Plaquenil because no studies show any deleterious effects to the babies. And so it's safe through pregnancy. Um, for those persons that are on more cytotoxic medications, uh, for example, methotrexate or mycophenolate mofetil, um, those patients should have pre-pregnancy counseling. We advise patients to be off those drugs for at least three months prior. Mm. And for those patients, in order to maintain disease control, we actually switch them to uh, non-teratogenic medication um, like hydroxychloroquine and imuran, which is azathioprine, I'm sorry, if they weren't on that before. Mm -hmm. um, we use steroids during pregnancy. It, they are safe, but we try to avoid excessive use of steroids in pregnancy, meaning use for high doses, because, again, of increased risk to the mother um, with, of gestational diabetes and also of the fetus, um, in excessive um, growth of the fetus. And so this can definitely be, um, again, problems with delivery um, mm -hmm. and how the final outcome is um, for the pregnancy. So there's a whole bunch of things that has to happen that you should put in place. And this is why we tell patients all the time, particularly those uh, women of childbearing age, um, to use uh, certain types of birth control and protection that will avoid unplanned pregnancies. Mm -hmm. And when they do decide to get pregnant, we hopefully um, all possess, the t we have the tools to lead them into um, uh, a more effective way to have a successful and a safe pregnancy, not only for mom, but in particular for the baby. Right. Right, and that, I know obviously that's important. Um, you mentioned, I think, just as we've gone through this, you've mentioned the fact that lupus is a disease, a disease that has flares. So, you know, what what advice or what would you what would you say to lupus patients to kind of manage and reduce the possible flares as they go in between? Right. Um, that is a very good question because many patients become discouraged because they. Um, for most, I, ideally, ideally, we want, uh, most people want to get medications for disease when it is diagnosed and they want to get better and that they want to be done. However, um, uh, with chronic diseases like lupus, um, that is typically not the case. Um, the disease can be quiet, the disease can go into remission, but for the majority of patients, you will have a seesaw pattern um, 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 in terms of the disease cause. Mm -hmm. And so for flares, what can patients do? Um, I reiterate and stress that patients need to follow up on a regular basis. Um, and that means following up with all the important parties like your primary care doc and particularly your specialist so that we can monitor your disease activity. When patients follow up, we, of course, evaluate them clinically and we look at their blood pressures, make sure their vitals are okay, we check their urine to make sure that they don't have any protein spilling in the urine because that is the initial or early signs of lupus affecting the kidneys or lupus nephritis. And we do blood tests to monitor those organ systems that I had mentioned previously, like your blood numbers and blood counts 
We also look at lupus disease activity markers, and that can be that, uh, multiple things. But in particular, we look at double-stranded DNA levels and complements, and these are just markers of inflammatory activity. Mm -hmm. And we put that all together and determine if you are having activity that's related to lupus or if it's otherwise. And then we can determine where to go with your treatment, whether you need to adjust your medications, whether you need what we call a steroid pulse to help to control the disease, or if we need to be significantly more aggressive in managing your lupus. Mm -hmm. And that's the role that I take. Now, the role that the patient takes should also include lifestyle changes. Mm -hmm. And um, we try to stress this a lot. Many patients um, are doing a good job, but we try to encourage patients to, one, eat, adopt a healthy lifestyle by eating a healthy diet, a diet that is a low inflammatory diet. Mm -hmm. And for many patients, that can mean many things, but Ultimately, we mean a diet that is low in sugars and processed foods. Um, we also want uh, encourage patients, if feasible, to exercise as much as possible. Get in your 30 minutes at least three to four times a week. We want them to maintain a healthy weight um, as well. And we want patients to get adequate amount of sleep. Now, I know Bahamians love to take um, um, uh, natural medication, I guess we would say. Um, but for some patients, I always advise that that too should be discussed with your rheumatologist or your primary care doctor. And mm -hmm. um, that's important because we have to avoid interactions with the medications right. that you're on. Um, but I do support the use of medications like um, fish oil and turmeric because those help to reduce inflammation and helps to uh, lim limit some of the bad effects as well of um, active chronic inflammation in the body. Um, so those are the things that I think um, if patients stick with um, just maintaining um, some degree of, um, you know, uh, um, responsibility in their disease process and, I believe that you can have very good outcomes long term. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it sounds like lupus is something where, you know, the, the role of family members um, and caregivers um, and, and that's, I guess, that social support system is very critical. What resources are available to lupus patients, um, family members or people who may be caregivers for a lupus patient? Right. That's an excellent question. And um, um, the resources that we have um, in the Bahamas, we have, like I had mentioned at the beginning of the show, um, is uh, Lupus 242 Bahamas. Mm -hmm. uh, they, are, they promote lupus awareness. And um, through the president, they have done a lot of lupus, camp, um, lupus sorry, re reach out campaigns for persons in the community to provide support of other lupus survivors. I think that is very helpful, particularly mm -hmm. younger patients being diagnosed to see that you have persons um, much older than yourself that are still surviving, still doing well, still functional, and still working with lupus. Um, 
beyond uh, this fantastic six part group, there are uh, online resources. And I like to refer my pregnant patients or any um, young female that's uh, um, anticipating or want to get pregnant um, to hop step. Um, I'm quite familiar with this group of women um, and created, um, this was um, an online forum created by Duke um, University physicians. And it helps to guide us through, like I mentioned, some of the things that we should thinking of preconception mm -hmm. during the pregnancy, the medications we should and should not be on, and who they should follow up with and, and, and maintain um, regular visits with throughout their pregnancy. So that is also a good option. And then there's lupus.org um, or the Lupus Foundation of America. Um, a good, again, good online resources to help with some of the more um, active things that are happening in the lupus community, um, including research um, and uh, research that are on that are on in the pipeline um, for the production of medications uh, to help to combat um, this disease. And so we do have a lot of resources um, that lupus patients can, in terms of the caregivers. Um, definitely, I, my hat goes off to the people, particularly parents of young kids with mm -hmm. lupus. Um, uh, again, sometimes we need more psychosocial support. And I'm hoping that in the future, we can develop, um, um, provide more monetary and, and as well as um, more monetary and uh, more counseling services for our lupus, lupus patients particularly that um, it is a chronic disease. It can lead to deformities and limit functioning. And so some of these patients cannot return to um, working like they normally um, would have had they not had a disease. Mm -hmm. um, and um, um, so, and the drugs and the medications that these patients typically require, particularly patients who have uh, what we call catastrophic disease, or disease that leads to significant um, uh, morbidity. Um, um, we need some support uh, for these patients uh, sometimes uh, monetarily to get their medications, uh, particularly since many of these medications are what we would call non-formulary and uh, um, not traditional medications, and they are very costly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I, that's a, a, a lot for us to chew on. I know we've, we've covered a lot of, um, ground on lupus so far, but I think it's, it's important, um, that we also have some conversation, um, with regards to the ongoing pandemic and how that relates to lupus patients. Um, obviously we've heard through, um, all of the different news media and through our health professionals, um, both here and around the world that, one of the um, most at-risk groups, groups of people when it comes to, to COVID-19 would be those with uh, pre-existing conditions. Um, I imagine lupus being one of them. So if, you know, I, I want to go through some questions that may be frequently asked questions from um, COVID-19, uh, well, lupus patients as it relates to COVID-19. So what... Um, what should a lupus patient do if they come into contact with someone who is sick or they are known to be COVID-19 positive? 
Sure, like you rightly mentioned, lupus patients are at high risk for infection. So definitely in this in this time in which COVID-19, um, uh, uh, you know, we are in a pandemic, um, if a patient has a known contact with a COVID positive patient, um, like any patient, they need to isolate and quarantine. But beyond that, they definitely need to contact their um, healthcare provider um, so that this can be known um, and um, to start the process of one, either maintaining that uh, mitigation, which is uh, isolation at home mm-hmm. or elsewhere, and um, getting tested um, if uh, they are at high risk. And there are guidelines by our Ministry of Health mm-hmm. as well as the CDC recommendations on who are those persons in terms of high risk exposures that require testing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, given you're talking about um, self isolation and quarantine, um, and I guess even in general, uh, that concept of protecting yourself because if you're a lupus patient you are at a higher risk um what should they do about their regular doctor's appointments um and for their injections their treatments where they are normally coming into um an office space to to get those done how how should they go about that process Right. Um, that's a very good question. All, all patients, but in particular patients with, with lupus, should practice um, safe measures by doing excess uh, significant hand washing with any exposures, try to um, maintain a safe distance of six feet. And they should also, um, in terms of going, getting the, going to their physicians, that of course um, is um, on a, um, an, an individual basis depending on your physician office. Mm-hmm. But I know at my practice, we have done a lot of changes to, um, for patients to be able to be seen and to get their regular me- medications, whether that be infusions or injections. Mm-hmm. And by that, we have met, placed up many hand sanitizing and hand washing stations. We give patients a mask. Of course, the staff wear mask and use gloves and other uh, form of uh, barrier or PPE when indicated. And we try to maintain um, a waiting room as well as a staff to patient distance of at least three to six feet, um, of course, other than when they're being evaluated. Um, So these are the questions that patients have to uh, definitely inquire of before they go to their physician, if the physician is actually active and open and allowing patients to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's extremely important. And I'm sorry, what was your uh, the other part of your question? Um, well, it was related to the, the injections and the infusion. So I think you just spoke to that. Right. Yeah. Right. And I just want to mention that, uh, like I had mentioned before, I believe um, patients should not stop their medications without the advice of their rheumatologist or mm-hmm. their regular doctor. Um, it, we will always determine clinically and by what your disease activity had been in the past, whether you need to stay on your medications or to hold them during this period of um, increased isolation and increased risk of infections like COVID. Um, but for the majority of patients, we want um, to try to maintain uh, the level of care that they've been receiving, including the medication, so that you can avoid having a flare 
and avoid having to have uh, more aggressive therapy that might require hospitalization. And so please discuss this on an individual basis with your rheumatologist or with your provider. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you also mentioned earlier um, one of the the medications that is prescribed for lupus is hydroxychloroquine. Um, and I know there's been a lot of discussion about that in the news as it re relates to being a potential treatment option for coronavirus. So where where does the medical community stand now on that as it relates to um, being helpful in fighting coronavirus? And then the second question would be, you know, if it is being used as a treatment measure, is there an expected shortage of the drug? Because obviously that would be very important to um, the lupus patients who are using that as a medication for their illness. Right. In March, um, in March, um, studies coming from uh, China and Europe had shown a, an initial efficacy in the use of hydroxychloroquine in patients in COVID-19 positive patients. Um, and this also could be extrapolated to the use of hydroxychloroquine with azithromycin in these patients as well. However, um, more recent studies have shown that it actually has shown some negative effects mm. and there has been no benefit in the use of hydroxychloroquine in particular, they have seen more adverse effects, particularly related to cardiac arrhythmias, mm -hmm. meaning um, heart, heart beating disorders in patients using that have been treated with hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. So as it stands now, both the CDC um, and my uh, CDC recommendations and um, and I recommend that we should it sh hydroxychloroquine should not be used for COVID um, um, nineteen positive patients. Um, in terms of the shortage, uh, we ourselves, uh, particularly in that, in the Bahamas, had definitely discussed with some of the pharmacists I know myself at Doctors Hospital Pharmacy to make sure we maintain significant supply. And also, I had advised my patients to keep at least a two to three month supply of hydroxychloroquine because that shortage had been anticipated. But now, in light of the new findings for the studies, um, we know that that is no longer the case. Understood. Okay. Um, one of the other things that was mentioned, I guess, as a part of the discussions of medications and COVID-19, um, do... NSAIDs or things like ibuprofen make the virus worse? Well, there's a lot we don't know about this virus, mm -hmm. but from what they have found thus far, uh, NSAIDs do not make, NSAIDs meaning, and I should be more specific with that, mm -hmm. because we can get them prescribed or over-the-counter, mm -hmm. meaning ibuprofen, naproxen, aspirin, it, they do not make uh, COVID-19 worse or put you at increased susceptibility for um, disease progression or to even get the disease. Right. Okay. Um, and then just in going back to the medication conversation with regards to lupus patients, uh, should they continue their other medications for lupus um, if infection is a concern? Um, that is a great question. And again, I reiterate that Lupus patients, we are some of many, many of them are on a sliding, a slippery slope, meaning that 
even small changes in their medications. Small reductions can lead to significant flare. Um, and we're trying to avoid that, particularly during this period, because we tr we're trying to avoid emergency room visits. We're trying to mm -hmm. avoid hospital admissions. And so I would say, please remain on your medications. Yes, you are at higher risk than the other population because you have a disease where your immune system is dysfunctional. And yes, you are on medications that suppress the immune system, which again increases your risk of infection. However, if you abruptly stop, med stop your medications and you have a lupus flare, that actually puts you at a higher risk of susceptibility to develop getting any infection, in particular COVID-19. So I would say practice the medication uh, procedures that we are all trying to enforce with the Ministry of Health and in, a, in your household. Avoid allowing anybody outside of your um, primary household uh, to come into your home, um, even friends, you know, uh, it, it's just that because many patients who are COVID-19 are asymptomatic, you cannot avoid any exposures that are unnecessary. And for many patients, um, I know some patients still have to work outside of the home. Then you wear masks and practice the hand washing procedures and the distancing that we have been promoting um, through the Ministry of Health and on the news and in every platform to date. Understood. Um, this has been very informative. Uh, I want to thank you, Dr. Roll, for taking uh, the time out today to um, go through some of the basics of lupus and really, I guess, you know, give us some more information about how um, the, the disease works, some of the treatment options, um, and specifically that last section on, you know, lupus patients and how it relates to the, the ongoing COVID-19 COVID pandemic. Um, this has been very, very informative. And I hope that as we, as we put the information out there, you know, that people are able to, to gain a lot from listening through the, the conversation today. Thank you so much, Alexis. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Doctors Hospital podcast. We'd like to give a special thanks to Dr. Nishka Roll for joining us today and giving us some great insight and information on everything to do about lupus. We invite you to tune into next week's podcast where we'll be speaking with Dr. Laura Desrosier, who will be talking about pelvic floor disease. She's a urogynecologist. So as we continue to celebrate also Women's Health Month during the month of May, We'll have Dr. Desrosier on to talk about um, one of the areas that affect women um, in women's health. So we invite you to stay tuned for next week's episode as well. And as always, we ask that you comment, subscribe, like, share the podcast, and we'll see you here next week. Mm -hmm.